Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is, the, humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master 
after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his servant was angry, and his master was angry, and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Let's pray together. Lord, we are willing and ready to have your word speak to us and guide us and convict us and exhort us and comfort us and encourage us. Everything that your great heart has planned for us, Lord, our hearts are ready to hear. Would you open up our hearts to your word? We're thankful, Father, that your word is already powerful. Would you just quicken our hearts, Lord, to it and help us, Lord, by your spirit to understand how we apply these things to our lives to bring you glory. We thank you for the preeminence of your word. We thank you that it will outlive the heavens and the earth. We're so grateful that all scripture has been given by you, Lord, for all the things that you've, you have provided for us. And so we yield our hearts to you now. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as we have discussed previously, Matthew's gospel contains the most of Jesus' teaching in all of the four gospels. And so there are five major teachings or sections uh, in the gospel of Matthew. And so we've seen uh, three of them so far. We've seen the Sermon on the Mount, which constitutes chapters five through seven. We've seen the Great Missionary Manifesto, kind of giving us practical instruction for missions and going out. We've seen that in chapter 10. We've seen the kingdom parables in chapter 13. Uh, and then today, as we see chapter 18, we're going to see this great chapter on forgiveness. And the word context is very important related to understanding this chapter. It's very important because there's a lot of verses in this chapter that are taken out of context. And so to understand them, just like any passage in Scripture, we have to look at the context. We have to look at the culture. We have to, a, a great principle of Bible interpretation is that it could never mean to us what it never meant to them. Very important. One of the first steps in interpreting the Scriptures correctly is to understand the original content that the original receivers received and what it meant to them. Then we can, then, then and only can we bridge the gap between their culture and the time difference and all of that to know how to apply it in our lives. Another principle is that there are, there's one interpretation, but many applications. So it can only mean one thing, but how we apply it can be, uh, very, can be um, diverse. And so here, we're going to understand this chapter. Some of you, for the first time, and this is what happened in my life, I remember the time when it happened, when I saw certain verses for the first time in their context, and I realized I had been believing the wrong things about what those verses were saying and how they were quoted for the first time in my Christian walk, I was shocked. What it did was it gave me a hunger to know God's Word, to understand what it really means, and to dig deep and not just accept people quoting verses and assume they're applying it correctly, but to test them by the scriptures like we're all called to do, even what I'm teaching here. <laughs> Trust me, don't ever elevate a teacher higher than God's word. Any teacher has to, has to be tested 
by God's word. It's a protection for that teacher. It's a protection for you. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17 was tested by the Bereans and he, they were commended as being more noble than the Thessalonians because they tested what the Apostle said daily and to see if what he was saying was true. So that's what God's called all of us to do. So Matthew 18 is not supremely, I'll repeat it, it's not supremely about church discipline nor confrontation. As we're going to see, chapter 18 is mainly about forgiveness. That's what it's about. It through the whole, that's the thread through the entire chapter. If we think it's all about confronting people, we think it's all about church discipline, we've missed the heart of God in the chapter. And, and so we have to look at it carefully. There's a distinct difference between having the heart to confront and having the heart to restore. There's a distinct difference between wanting to be right and winning a brother. That's the difference between God's heart and man's heart. And so he wants us to, to see that. Now notice it all begins with a question in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Oh boy. Is that what they say? I don't know what the Jewish little thing is, but oh man, oh man, or however we say it. Is this isn't the first time, this isn't, won't be the last time that the disciples are, they would argue about this. Picture the leaders in this church arguing, and you overheard them arguing, who's the greatest and who's going to be the greatest in heaven? How safe would you feel? Think about that. But that's what they were doing. That's who Jesus specifically chose. Mark tells us he prayed all night before he chose those disciples to make sure that we knew that it wasn't by mistake because we think that God chose us by mistake. But we get to see these disciples and all how carnal they are and how self-centered they are, how prideful they are, and, and it brings great encouragement for us. Uh, but human nature wants to know what's in it for me. We want to know, what do I get out of this? I mean, do you honestly think that they're asking this question let me rephrase it. Do you think that Peter was asking this question for the benefit of Andrew? Do you think that John was asking this for the benefit of, of, of you know, James? I mean, they were asking this because they cared about what their, where their placement would be. You know, sometimes in campaigns, political campaigns, the hope is if they help this candidate, help them win, then once they win, they'll have a great place of prominence in their administration. And oftentimes it happens. There's great payback that happens. Sometimes people will help a, a greatly gifted youth with hopes that if they ever go pro, then I will have this great blessing of knowing a professional athlete and have the box seats and all these things. There can be always these motives that we can have. Even in ministry, we can have motives that are not good. God tells us to beware of selfish ambition. And so we, we want God to promote and not seek after things and make something happen. All of those things grieves God. So we need to ask the question, and we will get on to the rest of the verses. I want to give you hope. Uh, what was it about this question? How were they measuring greatness? When the disciples were thinking who's going to be the greatest, what were they thinking, what were they thinking that meant? Position, titles, all those things. Well, we definitely want to be above the Pharisees because, you know, they think that they're so great. And then Jesus has been rebuking them and coming against them. But what were they thinking? And Jesus focuses on something that's entirely different than what they would think. See, see, your significance doesn't come from your position or your title. Your significance comes from your calling and your character. And Jesus is going to reveal that in, very, in something very specific. 
And he, and he, and he gives an example. Look at verse 2 and 3. It says, Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And there's a difference between being childlike and being childish. The Apostle Paul said, when I, in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I spoke as a child, but when I became a, a man, I put away childish things. Now, some of us are still learning that. Uh, we're growing, so be patient and gracious with us. But what he is venerating or lifting up or putting it as an example is how, how children are. Children just come as they are. They just approach adults and situations just how they are. They don't know how to be something other than what they are. They, they, don't, they know how to pretend. I pretended with the best of them. So all kinds of superheroes and you know, they can pretend and everything. But when they're not pretending or playing, they're, they're not trying to hide who they are. They're not trying to um, you know, come with any credentials they're, trying, they're not pointing anyone to their previous accomplishments or remind people of, of you know, what they have to offer or anything like that. They just come who they are, and, and it's a beautiful picture of humility. Little children, notice he does say little there, because as they get a little bit older, these things kind of don't, they, weren't, they don't see them as clearly. Uh, but they, they just are the genuine article. Now, Jesus elaborates further in verse 4. He says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he's focusing on humility. What's humility? Well, first let's ask what pride is. Pride is seeing yourself above. That's what pride means. Humility is not putting yourself down all the time. That's false humility. Humility is having an accurate assessment of yourself both in your own heart and to others. You can actually say in humility that you're good at something. Did you know that? Jesus was humble, and he, he communicated who he was, and it wasn't prideful for him to do that. There's a way to do it. Now, you, it's hard for us to do that because of our pride, our sin nature, but humility is just having an accurate assessment of who you are. So when we come to God as an unbeliever, we need to come to him in humility, meaning we need to come to him just as we are presenting ourselves to him with an, with an accurate assessment that we're in need of saving. That's what he means by coming to him like a little child. And he says, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice it says humbles himself. We like to humble other people, don't we? I want to make that guy humble. He says humble himself we're called to humble ourselves and 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 serve and be humble and so forth and so um, presenting ourselves just as we are that accurate assessment to him that's what god's called us to do and that's the way that anybody comes to christ you come to christ by coming just as you are sometimes i say and i've said this before i'll say this to an unbeliever when they tell me well let me just get some things cleaned up first then i'll come to god and i always say well would you Go outside of a shower and try to get clean before you get in the shower? No, you need to come into the shower and let God clean you up. As it's been said, you need to catch a fish before you clean it. God needs to catch us before he cleans us up. Come just as you are. It's a beautiful song. 
Come just as you are. Verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. How, how many of us remember our early teachers in school? Like you remember their names. Raise your hand. A lot of us. I can remember. I know they probably remember me. Uh, I'm trying to forget, like, let's shut this guy out of my memory. It's like branded in my head. Um, but I remember the names of all my teachers growing up. I could list them for you. Every one of them. And you especially remember the good teachers. And what is it about the good teachers that you enjoyed? They gave you attention. They loved you. You didn't care about the content. It wasn't like, wow, look at this instruction. I love this teacher. I've never learned so much. I mean, that may be the case for you. But most of us that remember our teachers, it was the impact they made on us because of the attention they gave us, the contact that they had for us. Now, the, con the context here is spiritual. And so we think about the earliest times for our children that they have contact with spiritual things. Now, that's usually in our, in our families first. But in terms of other people serving them, it's there. It's back there. And, and what's going on right now in the children's ministry, they are having these teachers as impact. I'm going to try to I'll not get emotional here. Well, I'm not doing this. Let's not do this for real. Women do that. To, I don't know how that helps. It somehow it helps. It's not helping me right now. But, uh, you know, they, they just think about the spiritual teachers that are back there. Their first teachers, how the impact that they're made. If you serve in children's ministry today, you're here and you serve in children's ministry. What an impact that you are making. Look at Jesus. What he's saying. He said, you receive one of these little children in my name, you receive me. That's the priority that he puts. There should be a waiting list for every children's ministry. Seriously, this is not a guilt trip or this isn't a, you know, a call to serve in children's ministry. Holy Spirit may use it in that way, but I'm not, it's not the purpose of why I'm bringing it up. The purpose of it, of it is that the privilege of inoculating them against the lies of this world early on and to love them and express the character of God in their lives. Beautiful. And God, it blesses him so much. And it also speaks to our need to model things for our children. They're watching us more than they're hearing us. They follow our example way more than they follow what we say. And that's so true. It's a picture of our accountability in the Christian life. The world is watching us how we act, not so much what we say. It's how we act. Our actions are everything. Now, he gives a huge warning beginning in verse 6. It says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and we were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. Now, think about that for a moment. This world is stumbling children all over the place spiritually. They're being fed lies in school. This world through entertainment, through the media, is completely, they're, they're, I'm not saying it's intentional, but their message is completely anti-Christ and against God's word. These children, our children, they need to have compensation. They need to have God's word and God's love compensate for all the things that are out there. So by the time they get to be junior high, high school, they've seen a great contrast. So when the world tells them, oh, that's just, blind faith and it's archaic it's out of date no it's real my sunday school teacher is real 
They love me. They've shown the love of Christ. They've taught me God's word. I know God's word is supernatural. Middle of verse 7. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hellfire. Because children are so vulnerable, because they are so trusting, God hates them to when they're misled and they're mistreated. And, and, and there's great, great consequence for that. A millstone was not a small little stone. Actually, the word is made up of three words. It means a donkey stone, technically, literally, because it would take a donkey to move the thing. It was so huge, massive. You can go to the Holy Land and you can see giant millstones. They're, they're massive. It would, it would be the place where they would go uh, to do whatever they do with grain. I can't even remember the verb right now, but process grain, rub it, or whatever they do. Uh, so it's a big, massive warning. And he's going to ask us later to forgive, to be very forgiving. And so he brings up consequences for sin. He knows how to give people consequences for sin. And that will come up later as we look at forgiving people. But it's better to be thrown into the sea and drown than to mislead or hurt a child in any way. We have background checks. We vet people that are serving in the children's ministry. We have a lot of things in place to protect them. And, and so it's very important to the Lord. It's very important to us. But the consequences of sin are very, very serious of misleading a child. Then he says in verse 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels. Now, some of you may wonder, what's the biblical basis for guardian angels? There you go right there. Their angels, the children's angels, always see the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains? Now, the mountains was a place of danger. Go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying. And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So he talks about the seriousness of sin, the consequences of sin. But then he speaks to the, his heart for the lost and specifically these children uh, them being guided the correct way spiritually speaking and for them to eventually come to know Christ you know King David said that he would not uh, the baby his baby would not return to him but he would go to where the baby was so I believe that children are go to heaven if they die before the age where they can make that decision I believe that most people believe that uh, but after that point, they need to receive Christ. As soon as they understand the concept of sin, remember he said children are the object lesson, lesson for faith. You know, it doesn't have, it's not complicated. As soon as they're able to understand what sin is and understand that Jesus paid for them, 
their sins on the cross that he took this. I want to communicate this way, took the punishment or the spankings or whatever for them so that they could receive a gift. They know all about gifts of salvation. They need to ask Jesus for that. As soon as they understand that, they need to do it. My children, I think, were four and five when that happened. And so the, don't wait. Lead your children to Christ. Ask them about it. Don't depend on a Sunday school teacher, although that happens and that's great. The greatest honor is to lead your children to Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful time uh, and, and something that you'll never, ever forget. But here, Jesus puts evangelism and the heart for the lost right in the middle of this because the hundred sheep is a picture of those who could be saved and are saved. One of them wanders off, the lost one, and the heart of the shepherd goes after the one. That's God's seeking and saving heart. He pursues people. Remember, he's on his way to the cross now. This is the last six months of his public ministry. He's still going to heal Bartimaeus of his, of his blindness. He's still going to save little Zacchaeus, that wee little man, as the Sunday school song goes. Uh, he's going to continue to do what he does and, and be who he is, even in the cross uh, in, in his focus there. So he has a heart for the loss. So we need to think about the loss related to children. We need to think about the loss related to those in our lives that don't know Christ. He's always bringing us back to our mission. Our mission is the gospel. We're supposed to be made into mature believers and thus be able to go out and preach the gospel and win people to Christ out there and bring them back here to be discipled. That's God's plan for the church. And it's beautiful. Don't think of evangelism as an event. Think of evangelism as people that are lost, that God sees them in the mountains, sees them in danger, wants to go after them, wants to reach them. No one is beyond the reach of God. No, no mountain is too difficult for God to, to reach a person that's lost there. And he wants to use us to do it. We're praying about this missions trip. Who is it that's going to go from our church that are, that's going to be able to be a blessing to those missionaries, to be able to proclaim the gospel potentially to people, to go? Jesus said, go. They didn't want to leave Jerusalem. So God had to bring persecution so they'd be scattered like seed all over the place in Israel and start preaching the gospel. Sometimes God works in our lives to get our, our attention off ourselves and help us to get our focus on others that are lost all around, around us. Now he gets to conflict resolution here in uh, verse 15. He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So when, when we have a conflict, we mean there's conflict in the body of Christ? Are you serious? For reals? Yes. There's, he says brother there, doesn't he? If your brother sins against you, let's, let's be honest here. We have conflict in the church. Any church that says there's no conflict here is not telling the truth. There's conflict in every church because we're people. We're, are, we are who we are. We have a sin nature. We have different personalities. God purposely puts certain people together to expose their lack of grace, expose their lack of patience, expose their lack of love, and, and he allows that. It's so hilarious watching who God puts together to serve together, work together, because most of the time there's things that both of them have to deal with. 
And God exposes that because they're, God set them in a relationship with each other. But there is conflict. So he gives these steps, and we're going to look at three steps to this conflict resolution. God, he, he deals with everything, doesn't he? He doesn't leave anything out. It's wonderful. So step one, again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So step one, first of all, make sure he sinned against you. Make sure it's actually sin that occurred. There's all kinds of things that people can do that are not sinful. They're not breaking God's word or going against God's word that we can get offended by. And we could start down this process of, I'm going to do this, the, the conflict of Matt, the conflict resolution, or, um, yeah, resolution of Matthew 18. But he never, they never sinned against you. Confirm that they actually sinned against you. Also, go to them. That's what it says. Before you talk about it to anybody else, go to that person. If you have talked to anybody else before you've talked to that person, you're not following this. And I exhort myself. God doesn't call us to share, to gossip about anybody. He calls us to, and this includes our spouses. You can gossip to our spouses too. Now we're getting into meddling now. Now we're getting where the, man, this is serious. I'm getting convicted right here. It's not in my notes, just, whoo. We can gossip with our spouse. It's getting quiet in here. Uh, <laughs> but a one-on-one discussion with them. Now, there's a way to do that, that that will help the situation, not make it harder. There's a way to do that. You have to come in humility. You have to come with giving them the benefit of the doubt in humility, with love. Don't assume you have the entire picture. How many of us have found out after we thought someone sinned against us that we didn't have the whole picture? Show of hands. Oh, yeah, all over the place. Hands being raised for you podcasters. Uh, it's true. They're listening. But they, th- we have to go to them alone and express to them our concern that we are hurt because they sinned against us. Am I, you just say, am I missing something? Don't come with I'm going to bust you attitude. I'm going to confront you now. I'm going to put you in your place now. All of your, your, your aggressive, all that's going to do is make the other person defensive or whatever. Come, am I missing something here? And it seems like this happened. I could be wrong. Am I missing? You know, and, and how many times has it been unintentional? A lot. Many, many times it was unintentional. So we need to ask. That's d- uh, diplomacy, yes, but it's love. It's get- Wouldn't you like someone to do that to you? We're supposed to treat others how we'd want to be treated. Would you want someone coming and just accusing you, accusing you instead of finding out all the facts. I've done that so many times incorrectly and God's working on me to be able to come in the right way. So do that. And, and but if you do it the right way, it'll save so many problems. 99% of the issues in the body of Christ with interpersonal conflict would be over and handled correctly if people would obey these verses and go to them directly first in humility considering that we could be wrong too. And usually it takes two to tango. <laughs> it takes, usually it's not just a one-sided thing if you really look at it uh, closely. So that's step one. He continues in for step two, verse 16. But he will not hear, take with you one or two more 
that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So step two is coming with witnesses. Now he gives a limitation. The most three, two or three. Now this doesn't mean just bring people that are on your side. Okay, I have mounted my, I have, I have created my defense team. They're on my side no matter what they're going to side with me. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about witnesses. He's talking about people that know the situation or they are, they've done an investigation and know that the facts that you're presenting are accurate. You want people that are impartial. You want people that are just as for the other person as they are for you. People of integrity. People that will do their due diligence. It's, 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 when it's done correctly, it's wonderful. The goal here is not to be proven right. I want to repeat that. The goal is not to be proven right or be vindicated. That's a self-focus. The point is reconciliation. We like to be right, don't we? I love to be right. It's because I usually am. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm wrong just by saying that. My, my wife's not here to say amen, but she would. Notice at the end of verse 15, as we back up a verse, he says, you have gained your brother. That unlocks what the goal should be for you and I, because that's God's goal. The value is in the relationship. God values our relationship with one another. Growing up, if you had a sibling and you were fighting, who cared more about you getting along with your sibling, you and your sibling or your parents or parent? The parents. The parents want to see the siblings get along. God wants us to get along with each other. It blesses him when we get along with each other. We have such a self-focus. We think it's all about us. It's not. It's about what he thinks about it. So he gets to the parent, the responsible adult, God. He wants us to get along with our brothers and sisters, our siblings, because it affects everyone else in the family. It affects him. It affects everything. It's not optional. It's so easy to divide, and the flesh is so good at it. It's so much more convenient to, I don't want anything to do with them. Whereas a popular saying, you're dead to me. God doesn't deal with that kind of talk. He doesn't acknowledge it in the body of Christ. We, we don't have that luxury of having someone be dead to us. He's called us to be together as a family. We're one body. What if your toe said, Hey, elbow, I'm, you're dead to me. That'd be disastrous. How would you ever go like this and you then run? You know, you, 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 can't, you, can't, you can't get away with that. God has zero tolerance, zero tolerance for people not getting along in the church. Zero tolerance. It doesn't matter if there's a lot of churches from which to choose. See, in, the, in that time, there wasn't. You, you had the church and that was it in that city. You didn't have options. And so when people say to me, I've actually had people say, I can't go to the church that you pastor because so-and-so is there. And, and he doesn't leave that as an option. Because if in the, in, the, in the New Testament times, if there was no other options and he's called us to be in fellowship, what are we supposed to do? Not be in fellowship anymore? God doesn't, doesn't leave that as an option. He's given us all the grace He's given us all of the forgiveness. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us examples in the Lord Jesus that we can forgive because we have been forgiven. And so he doesn't allow that. 
We can't be in a room and treat someone like they're invisible. That grieves the heart of God. He sees it. Just like if you have children, if they ignored the other, you're in the living room and the, your son it, it pretends like the, your daughter doesn't exist and is invisible. I would hurt you. You'd weep. You'd go in the other room and cry. And you would beg them to reconcile. We have been forgiven of all of our sins. Jesus forgave his enemies. Stephen, when he's getting stoned, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We have no right to hold back forgiveness. God doesn't know anything about irreconcilable differences in his people. There is no such thing as irreconcilable for him because we can always forgive. We can always ask him for the strength to do it. Now, if step one and step two fail, then God is forced to step three, verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Those are people that you start trying to preach the gospel to. And, and so this is what's called church discipline. If a person has sinned against somebody else, they will not repent when they when all of this is done the right way and they're digging their heels in. They won't repent. They it's clear that they've done it. It's not a question whether or not they've done it or not. They will not repent. They will not be reconciled. Then God is forced to discipline them and and it needs to be said to the church. And that person needs to be disciplined. Now, usually it doesn't ever get to that point because they leave before that. But in that day, they didn't have those options. That's the only fellowship. And see, it reveals that God sees the church as a blessing and a privilege to be a part of. It's a discipline to not be allowed to be among his people with God hoping that they will repent. You know, there's an example of this in 1 Corinthians where a man was, was sleeping with his stepmother and the Corinthians were putting up with it and Paul rebuked them and told him to put him out of the fellowship. But then in 2 Corinthians, he talks all about restoring that brother because he had repented and it was beautiful. So church discipline is never punitive. It's never meant to hurt you. If, you're, if that ever happens to you, I hope it doesn't. I hope you, that you repent and all of those things. But if that ever happens to you here, I want you to know ahead of time, it would break our hearts. We wouldn't enjoy it. We wouldn't be doing it to hurt you. It'd be, it'd be because we are for you and we are following God's word. It's not very common in, in, in healthy churches where this comes to this level because usually it's already dealt with at step one. And, and one of the things we have to recognize is that God hasn't given us the option to not bring it to someone if they've sinned against us. Because again, it's not about us all the time. It's about them. Do you want to know if you've hurt somebody? Even if they're moved on, forgiven you and moved on, yes, you would want to know that. You want to grow as a Christian. You want to grow in maturity. So it's not just about what we get out of it. Oh, I'm just going to bury it in my heart and, you know, just I'm good. I'm, I'm just going to let it go. And all. No, no, no. God wants to use what we say to each other to help us grow and become more like Christ. And if we don't bring it up in a healthy, tactful way, then that's not going to happen in their lives. And you're in part existing in the body of Christ for other people's benefit, not just your own. Now, some people, unfortunately, jump right to step three. Hi, Pastor Pat, how you doing? Oh, great, Pastor. Yeah, so-and-so did this. Oh, have you gone to them? And no. Okay, well, maybe you need to do that. Go read Matthew 18 and then let's follow, you know, 
don't call me if you haven't done step one and step two. Uh, because obviously God lays it out for a purpose. He's hoping it never gets to step two. He's hoping it never gets, there's a step one, obviously. But if there is a step three, then the other things have to have happened. Now, we get to some verses that will help be very clear to us now, now that we know the context. Verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. How many of us have been taught that this has to do with spiritual warfare? Me. Binding Satan. We're binding this. We're binding that. We'd use a certain inflection in our voice and it's more powerful. We'll bind you. You know, all these things that we were taught, this crazy things. But we need to understand what binding and loosing is. It's agreements. We're loosing an agreement. We're, we're making an agreement binding. On That's what we use when we say something is binding. That's the point here. What God is telling us is that if you do this process correctly and you come to the decision that this person has to be removed from the church or this person has to be dealt with how God lays it out, that all of, of heaven is behind that decision. It's like as if he's there in the midst. Oh, wait, he says that. Look at verse 20. For where I haven't skipped 19, I know it's there. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. When we have people with conflict, what do we want to do? If I could just get Jesus in the middle of those people. See, that's what God's saying. He's saying, if you do all of this right, not for the purpose of being right or being vindicated, but for the purpose of winning your brother, and you do things how I say here, I'm in the midst there. I'm, it's like as if I'm present as the judge. I am backing what that decision says and the implications of, of that decision. And he says, 19, again, if I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, related to handling conflict. You ask anything related to, to, to these things and so forth. You, you, you agree on these things concerning uh, these decisions. Then God says, I will answer that prayer. I will get behind it. I'm in the midst of you. And it is true that when we gather together, two or more, he's there in the midst of us. That's, that's again, one interpretation, many applications. So it's true. He's here with us right now. He walks in the middle of the churches in Revelation He's here. Jesus is here among us. He's the guest of honor. But when you are dealing with conflict, I need to know as a leader, you need to know as someone that wants God's will done in your life, that all of heaven is behind you when you're making difficult decisions related to people and conflict and resolution and forgiveness. And he says, I'm there in the midst of you. Whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. It's all the same as on earth as it is in heaven because you're doing it my way. Because you've done it my way, I'm behind it and so forth. So it totally makes sense, these verses and what it's talking about when you look at the context. Now, verse 21, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now we criticize Peter but we shouldn't because he's actually doing pretty well here in his own limited understanding. The rabbis taught three times. Amos in, in, the, uh, in the first two chapters, there's prophecies given multiple times where God says, three sins and for four, I will judge you. 
And so they interpreted that as that's the max that we need to forgive. If God's going to judge people after those many times, then we don't. We shouldn't go beyond God. Who are we to forgive more than God does? You know, it's like that's how our, what our, where our hearts are at. So, but he doubles it and then adds one seven times. Seven is the word, the number of perfection and completion and so forth. So he's going way beyond that. Seven, 70 times seven. He's basically saying it's unlimited because by that time you're going to for, either forgive or you're going to die. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like you're just going to have a forgiving heart. That's just what God's wanting to cultivate in us. Now, God illustrates all of this and does what he does. One of the things he does really well, and that's tell a story. He says in verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. A moved with compassion is something we've seen as we've gone through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, that Jesus often expressed. He was moved with compassion. So this is, we're seeing hints of the heart of God in this, in this story. Middle of verse 27. Moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant, notice the word fellow. He's talking about forgiving brothers, right? Our peers. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved. Now, aren't we very grieved? Did we see our brothers and sisters not do the right thing with each other? Yes, we are. And came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, having after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Isn't that what we do at salvation? We are begging for forgiveness. We are asking for forgiveness. It's exactly what our hearts and it's, it's exactly true. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow, there's the word fellow again, fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master had was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Really quickly, the cultural differences we need to understand related to the debt that was owed. A talent was 75 pounds of silver or gold. It was, you could, that's like most a person could carry. We would call it bullion today. A talent or a, 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 a denarius was a little Roman coin the size basically of a dime. It was one day's wage. So that gives us some perspective. So one man owed 10,000 75 pound bullions and the other owed 100 coins or 100 days wages. So that's the difference there. That's that's the comparison. And, and may, may I say that that doesn't even compare to the sin debt that we have been forgiven related to our sins and the things that people do to us. The distance between what people do to us most of the time and what God has forgiven us, I believe, is greater than the distance between 10,000 talents and 100 denarii. 
And, and so it would take you to pay off 10,000 talents with, with regular wages. It would take you 200,000 years to pay the debt if you were just a one man, you know, making wages and so forth. It's, it's beyond your capacity to do it. So then he, verse 35, so my heavenly father will do to you, do to you if each of you from his heart, notice that, from his heart, the difference between going through the motions is a difference between doing it outwardly. Jesus looks at the heart. It's all about the heart in Christianity. From his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now, this is a very difficult verse. And it's difficult because we don't like what it says. It's difficult. It is. And I don't understand. I'm not going to soften God's word. I'm not going to try to massage it to make it say something that it's not. I'm going to let it speak for what it says. Jesus said what he said, and I don't know how all of it works out, and I haven't been told to figure it out. I just know the main point is he hates unforgiveness in his people, and there are repercussions for it in our lives. And so that's very important. It, he doesn't tolerate it. We have no right to not forgive people since we have been forgiven so much. And let me just bring up a few points before we close related to that. I know that in this, even in this group here, I'm not thinking of anyone specifically, but I just know from this group, I know that I'm speaking into real lives that have gone through real things. And I know that some of you have been greatly victimized. And when you read something like this, it causes almost a panic in you because of what you have gone through. And you could be tempted to say, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what that was like. First of all, you don't know that I don't know what it was like. But number two is the biggest point is that Jesus knows exactly what you went through. And we know it as much as we can on this side of heaven, what Jesus went through when he was on that cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If anybody had a right to have unforgiveness, it would be the Lord Jesus on that cross. But yet he still forgave them. It's a model for us. Stephen, who had a sinful nature, unlike the Lord Jesus, forgave them at that point of being stoned. Those weren't just throwing little rocks. That was going down in a ravine and them hurling big rocks on you and one's coming on top of you one after another and you're, you're dead. That's what they did. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was there giving approval to it, holding their cloaks as they engaged in this religious hypocrisy and, and killed this man that was a totally against the law of Moses after being cut to the heart by God's word of what he said. So I understand that many of you have gone through horrific things. I'm not minimizing what you've gone through. God understands every single bit of it. And God also knows how much he's forgiving, forgiven you. Secondly, forgiveness is not merely an event. It's an ongoing attitude. He wants to cultivate us a forgiving heart, not a grudge-based heart, where our first instinct is to have a grudge and have bitterness. He wants us to have a forgiving heart. And related to anything that's happened to you, you have to let God do that in you. And one of the ways that you can do that is because forgiving is letting someone off the hook. One of the ways that you can do that, letting them off the hook is not letting them off God's hook. Because you're not just forgiving them and leaving them alone as if nothing's going to happen or no one's responsible for them. You're entrusting them to God. That God, remember, we already talked about millstones, right? Does God know how to repay? He says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. 
We can't personalize that. Oh, it's a heavy revy for me. God said vengeance is mine. No, that's not responsible to do that with his word. Revengeance isn't mine. Revengeance, he's saying it's mine like it's his. So we have to forgive people and give it to God and trust that he is just. And they're either going to get saved, which okay, I know that our emotions, we don't want that, but it's either they're going to get saved or he's going to deal with them appropriately. We're the ones that are suffering. That's, the, that's one of the points that I'm going to get to in a moment. We're the ones that suffer when we don't uh, forgive. We can let them off the hook because God is a just God. Number three, there's a difference between forgiving and trusting. That's important because we have to forgive them. Jesus said from our heart, we have to forgive them, but you don't have to trust them. Forgiveness is commanded to be offered, but trust is earned and God's okay with that. God's okay that trust is earned. You don't have to place yourself over and over in a position to be hurt. God can give you understanding of what the new boundaries should be. And he's faithful to do it. Trust is earned. And I know there's scars. I know it takes time. I've been hurt deeply by people. There's still scars in me. But I offer those things up to the Lord. Not perfectly, but I offer those things up to him to continue to heal us. So, yes, he understands. Last thing I want to mention especially with some of your backgrounds, because I know that some of you have been through spiritual abuse. I think probably over 60, 70% of our church have had some background in that. I want you to hear from me say from this pulpit that leaders are not above Matthew 18. Leaders are, are definitely not above being confronted by people in the church when we have sinned against you. We're not above being confronted. If we've sinned, and I hope that we never, ever, ever do. But I want you to know that you have complete freedom to come to any leader and say, I don't know the whole story. I may be missing something, all those things. But it appears that you've sinned against me in this. And we're never going to tell you we're above that. We're, too, we're, we're God's leaders here. We, we're, you're the ones that we do the Matthew 18 on you. You don't do it on us. That is not true. There's no exceptions to Matthew 18. There's no exception. No, there are pastors that do that. There are pastors that do that. I'm, and you know that. Some of you know that from your personal experience. Leaders are accountable more. They, and so anybody can come to a biblical, healthy leader and say, you sinned against me, and they're not going to pull the authority card on you, and they're not going to say, how dare you question me? I'm the pastor. I'm the leader or whatever. It needs to be said that everybody's accountable. I'm accountable. You're accountable. Leaders are accountable. We have a board to whom I'm accountable. If I disqualify myself, they can fire me. And that's healthy for me to know. Hopefully I would resign if I disqualified myself. But there's accountability. Nobody is above accountability. I don't care who it is. The Apostle Paul was not above accountability. The Apostle Peter was not above accountability. The Apostle Paul confronted the Apostle Peter in front of them all. Galatians chapter 1. I think it is, or chapter 2, the beginning of Galatians. How's that? They, he, they, he was confronted Peter because of his hypocrisy. And Peter didn't say, whoa, 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 Pope, Pope, Pope. Or, you know, he didn't say, you know, I'm the leader or, or you know, who I'm an apostle. You know, we're, 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 we're colleagues. You know, you can't do that. How dare you do that in front of people? You could have brought me aside. There's more accountability for leaders. More accountability. You know, it says in 1 Timothy 5, for those, he's talking about elders, those who are deliberately sinning or those who keep on sinning, 
Let him that be rebuked in the presence of all that others may fear. So there's accountability for leaders just as much as there are for anybody else. And I, for those of you that are healing from a bad situation, I want you to hear that from me from this pulpit because it's true. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Help us to be reconcilers. Father, thank you, Lord, that you have such value upon our relationship with one another. Help us to not sin against each other. Help us, Lord, to love one another. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Forgive us of our lack of our lack of concern for others and being selfish and self-focused. Help us, Father, to focus on one another and love one another the way you want us to love. We want you to be blessed by our love for each other, God. You, you say it so many times in your word. Help us to do everything biblically in the way that you've called us to. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.